Our Father and our God, we pray as we open up your word this morning that you would open up our eyes and hearts. Cause us to see the glory of Christ, the beauty of our Messiah. Cause us to follow, to adore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hundred and fifty years before Christ, the Romans had a mythical king by the name of Janus. He was the god of beginnings, and he had two faces. Because he was the god of beginnings, they put him at the beginning of their calendar and gave the very first name of the very first month to him. We call it January. The two faces did not mean that he was hypocritical or somehow deceptive. It simply meant that we are at the beginning of a new year to reflect back and to look forward. So reflection and anticipation. And because of that, he became the ancient symbol for New Year's resolutions. I don't know if the practice started immediately then, but it has picked up steam and it is very popular in our land today. In fact, about 50% of the people in America make New Year's resolutions. About 8% of the people keep them. And the average time that they keep them, two months. That's a pretty poor track record, but I can understand that because I kind of fit in that category myself. Here's someone who uh, made a New Year's resolution one year to lose weight. They said in 2015, uh, I resolved to get my weight down under 180. In 2016, I resolved to get my weight down under 190. In 2017, I, I desire or resolve religiously to follow my new diet so I can be below 200 pounds. But then I love the last one. This year, they said, I resolve to develop a realistic attitude about my weight. So we give in, don't we? We crash. Or the person who said, uh, I'm going to work out five days a week. The next year, I'm going to work out three days a week. The next year, I'm going to drive by a gym once a week. And our resolve weakens. But I would encourage you to make a resolve with me today that by the grace of God, you will seek to keep every day of this new year, 2018. And the resolve is simply this to see Jesus every day. To see Jesus every day. Now, I'm not referring to seeing Him literally with your eyes. Um, it's not that God cannot do that, and some miraculous things are happening on the mission field, especially in the Muslim world, where we might recall the prophecies even repeated in the book of Acts that in the last days there will be this seeing of visions. But that's not the norm. The norm is for us to see Christ with the eyes of faith, but to see Him we must. And to do so, we must resolve. A resolve is a determination. It is a settled course of action. A deliberate act of the will. A decision made after careful review of the facts. And after you review all of the facts of life, the most important thing is to know Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you to resolve that every day, by God's grace, I want to see Christ. 
John chapter 12, you don't need to turn there, but in John chapter 12, the request was made to the disciples of Christ, we wish to see Jesus. That phrase, taken somewhat out of context, was once put on the pulpit in plaque form for uh, a particular pastor of a church to see every time he delivered a sermon. This is what the people want to see. Sir, we would see Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17, when the cloud dissipated on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw Jesus only. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that we must look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So how do we see Jesus with the eyes of faith? Uh, Well, I would instruct you to turn to Luke chapter 24. That is, the scripture instructs us in Luke 24 to get a better handle on what this might mean. Luke 24 is a chapter that deals with the resurrection. And on the day of the resurrection, somewhere in the afternoon, two disciples start walking from Jerusalem, where all the action had taken place, to the city of Emmaus, which most likely was their hometown. We know the name of one of the disciples, Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other. But we do know that they were discouraged individuals. Verse 17 of chapter 24 makes that abundantly clear. That they were downcast. They were discouraged and dispirited. And when you put all the facts together, listening to what they're about to say, we understand that they're discouraged because Jesus was crucified. They had not heard about the resurrection. And they thought that all that they had believed had now had been dashed by the Romans and their Messiah had been killed. While they're walking on the road to Emmaus, discouraged, probably going home and quitting the ministry, Jesus joins them. The resurrected Jesus joins them, and they don't know that it's him. Jesus came up and walked along with them, verse 15 says, but they were kept from recognizing him I find that amazing. They didn't know about the resurrection and they didn't know that this was Christ. Mark chapter 16 says that Jesus appeared in a different form. I don't know exactly what that means, but that was part of the reason why they didn't immediately recognize him. But they weren't expecting him. They weren't expecting him to show up. He had been crucified, buried, and the tomb was empty. Someone had tampered with it, stolen the body. They had no idea where he was. And they were totally discouraged. That's the setting. And so as Jesus walks along with them, and they cannot see him, a very interesting discussion ensues. But I want to jump ahead now to the end of the chapter and uh, to verse 31. So we notice in verse 16 that their eyes were closed somehow. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Christ. But when you get to verse 31, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. I find that fascinating. And I want to know what made the difference between verse 16 and verse 31. How were their eyes opened? How did they recognize the Savior? And I think understanding what's happening in this text will help us as we make a new resolve to see Jesus every day. Well, we're told that they 
were discouraged because Christ had not fulfilled their hopes of a military Messiah. And when Jesus heard their discussion, by the way, uh, as Jesus walks along with them, uh, Jesus says, why are you sad? And they said, haven't you heard what's happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, what things? It's humorous. And they began to spew out all of their confusion and difficulty. Have you ever asked a person a question and then for another hour you're listening to details you don't want to hear? You're afraid to ask some people, how are you feeling? Because you know that it's going to take quite a long time for them to explain all of their ailments, real and supposed. But that's what happened to Jesus. What things? And they began to just pour out their heart of discouragement. And at the end, Jesus said in verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow of heart. Your heart is dull. It's lethargic. It's inactive. It's not responding to the proper stimulus as it ought to. How slow you are of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? In other words, their Christology, their theology about Jesus, had involved this idea of the nation doing some suffering, but then becoming a glorious kingdom with the Messiah leading it um, in triumph over the Romans. And that's what they expected from Christ, and it didn't happen. And Jesus said, well, you have it all wrong. At least the chronology of it, there is suffering first before the glory. That's verse 26. Did not the Christ have to suffer the crucifixion, the abuse, the betrayal, before he entered into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What an amazing sermon that must have been. Jesus takes the Old Testament and uses the classical understanding of its main divisions. Later on, he'll add the Psalms in verse 44. And that's what the Old Testament consisted of. Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, Jesus took all the Old Testament Scripture and began to talk about himself. Here's the first step to seeing Jesus every day. This is how it's done. We can know Christ or see Christ through the opening of the Scriptures. That's where you see the Savior. You see the living Word of God in the living written Word of God. When the Scriptures are opened up, they present from Genesis to Revelation this message consistent and whole about the person of Christ. And their hearts were warmed and their hearts were burning. I find it interesting that you and I, in making our resolutions for a new year, often forget about a determination to read the Scripture. Or if we do determine to read the Scripture, we somehow get off track. We don't follow the schedule. I mean, that's happened to me. I make all these plans, have a Bible reading schedule, and then I get off track, January 6th. I miss a day. And what do we have a tendency to do? I don't know if you're like me, but I have a tendency just to quit. If I can't stay on schedule, now I'm behind. I guess I'll have to wait till 2019 before I can start this again. And because we fail in keeping to schedule, we have a tendency to give up the endeavor altogether. 
What we forget is that the righteous fall seven times, but they get up again. The mark of a godly person is not that you never fall. It's that when you fall, you get up. There is this confession of sin. This is, there is this determination to get back on track and to follow the path that the Lord has given to you. We have some Bible reading schedules that uh, uh, are out at the Welcome Center. Pick up one of those or one yourself that you have found. Get in some systematic, regular schedule to read the Scriptures every day because it's in the opening of the Scriptures that you see Christ. And you can't understand the Word without reading the Word. And when you fail or miss a day, get back on your horse and ride again. G. Campbell Morgan said in the early 1920s, the supreme need of the church today is to see Christ in the Word. And that's still the supreme need of the church today, to see Christ in the Word. Because when you see Christ, you will worship Him. And when you see Christ, you will love Him. And when you see Christ, you will follow Him. And if you don't worship Him and love Him and follow Him, my friend, you have not seen Christ. The glory and beauty of Jesus Christ is so compelling and so magnetic that when you see Him, you're drawn to Him and you cannot see Him without loving Him. So people get close, but they don't comprehend. Reading the Scripture is the only way that we can hope to come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ who is our life and who is our all. Psalm 34, 5 says, They looked to Him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. If you want to have a radiant life, if you want to have a bright hope, if you want to get rid of guilt and shame, see Jesus every day. And you'll worship Him. And you'll love Him. You'll confess your sins and find forgiveness and with new resolve, seek to follow him every day. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is our all in all. He is our portion. We were created to know God. We were called to have fellowship with Christ. And we cannot find deep satisfaction and real meaning in life any other way. Your job cannot do it. Your relationship any relationship, that will not meet the deep-seated needs in your life. We need many of these other things, but what we really need is Christ. And once we have Him, then we have something to offer to others. Then the other things of life fit into their proper perspective, and they make sense. The opening of the Scriptures. Notice verse 32. They said, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked with us on the way? And while he opened to us the scriptures, one of the results of seeing Christ is a burning heart. That is enthusiastic, energetic, hopeful, excited. The burning heart. We often talk about a person that is zealous as being a person who is on fire. And the very word zeal comes from the idea of burning. 
But once your fire is lit, it doesn't stay. William Booth, once talking to recruits in the Salvation Army, said to them, remember this, the nature of a fire is to go out. Therefore, you must keep it stirred. Secondly, you must add fuel to your fire. And thirdly, you must remove the ashes. And if you want your heart to be on fire, as you see Christ, you're adding more fuel. As you see Christ, your heart is stirred. And as you see Christ, there's confession and forgiveness, and the ashes are taken away. So that's step number one. We can know Christ through the opening of the Scriptures. We've got to do it on a regular basis. You say, Pastor, how much Scripture should I read? I don't care. Read until you see Christ. Now, you're eventually going to have to go to work, so you'll have to stop if it's one of those days where Christ doesn't appear clearly to you in the pages of Scripture, but don't let that stop you. Continue on with your determination the next day. It's interesting, as we go back to Luke 24, that verse 28 says, they approached the village to which they were going, that is Emmaus, and Jesus acted as if he was going to go farther. That is, there was every indication that Jesus hadn't finished his journey. He had not reached his destination. He was continuing to walk on. But they said, no. They urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So resurrection happens early in the morning. Um, they hear about the empty tomb from the women they are discouraged and leave. They're about ready to quit. It's late afternoon. They're walking two hours, I guess, to get to Emmaus. It's now evening time. And they say to Jesus, stay with us. And here is a miracle. Verse 29, so he stayed. They're asking God to change his plan as it appears to them. And he stayed. You and I sometimes get the sense that God is bypassing us, that His intention is almost to go around us, that He's not concerned with us. And when that is the case, we often give up. But these people strongly urged Him to stay. Their hearts were burning. They wanted more. They were not content and would not let Him go. It sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 32 when Jacob was wrestling with the angel. You remember that story? And we find out that the angel is God from the book of Hosea. And the Bible tells us Jacob is wrestling with his angel, and the angel says to Jacob, let me go. And Jacob says, okay, you're an angel, right? No, he says, I will not let you go until you what? What is that? Bless me. I won't let you go until you... The angel said, I want to go, and Jacob said, no. Which leads me to believe that sometime God gives us every indication of going on until we say, stay. I want you to stay. It was J.C. Ryle who said, those who put a holy constraint on Christ in prayer enjoy the most of his manifest presence. 
In other words, if I don't constrain Christ, if I don't strongly urge him to stay, I'm going to miss a lot of the blessing. And had they not done this, the rest of the chapter and all of its blessings, they would not have enjoyed. So they urge him to stay, and he stays. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, whose table? Their table. This is their house. Jesus takes over. He takes charge. He took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it, and he began to give it to them. Verse 31, then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. So what's the second thing? Their eyes were opened. They saw Jesus through the breaking of the bread. Now, you might say to me, well, pastor, don't you understand that when he was breaking the bread, they saw the wounds and the scars in his hands? Maybe. Well, don't you understand that when they got down around the table, they heard his voice and they recognized it was Christ, perhaps, but he'd just give them a wonderful sermon from the Old Testament and they still didn't know it was him. Did you notice that in verse 30, there are four verbs that have the same cadence and the same order as the Lord's Supper? Took the bread, gave thanks for the bread, broke the bread, gave the bread. And it's very possible that this is when they recognized him in the Lord's Supper. And could it be that one of the ways that God is giving to us for us to experience an understanding of Christ is around the table? You say that's, myth, that's mystical. So what's wrong with that? If it's God ordained, are you so objective that you cannot take anything subjective to the heart? I know this. God has given us an ordinance he wants us to follow called the Lord's Supper. He's so focused on it. You know, if the Apostle Paul had a resolution, it would be a New Year's resolution, it would be the one we find in 1 Corinthians 2, 2. I am resolved not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the foundation of everything else. It's the gospel. There is no relationship with God without the cross. Don't forget that. And Jesus could have chosen anything he wanted. He, it's not his wonderful words. It's not his mighty miracles. As great as those are, and as much as we need to remember them, he said, remember my death. That's what I want you to remember. And I want you to do it as often as you want until I come back. That is, make it a regular practice. We say ordinance, something officially instituted and regularly followed. And there is a means of blessing in the Lord's Supper that you can't get anywhere else. What is it? I think part of it is this. When we come in faith and take these elements and reflect upon the death of Christ, we see Christ. And God does something in our heart that he won't do any other way. If he commands you to obey the Lord's Supper and you say, you know, it's not really that important to me. I mean, I can see Christ you know, in the Word, and I can listen to sermons online, all good things, but I don't need to be with the people of God when they have the Lord's Supper. I would say to you, where do you get that from? When your master said, do this, it's a command, do this, 
and remember me when you do. There must be a blessing in it. You cannot get anywhere else. So make a resolution not to miss the Lord's Supper this year. Not for me. I'm not keeping account. It's for you. It's the blessing you get to see Christ. And when you see him, you worship him. And when you see him, you love him. And when you see him, you follow him. You're missing a great blessing if you miss the Lord's Supper. Now, I've been preaching the same sermon. This is the third time this morning to people who are here for the Lord's Supper. So I do not rebuke you. I just encourage you. Make it a, a determination of your heart to be there when God reveals himself in such an amazing way. Sometimes our communion services are too hurried. I hope this year we have some slower ones. We probably should break the bread and pour out the juice so you can watch the symbolism because that's the way it's stated. And in all of that, to reflect upon the love of God, for greater love is no one than this, that a person would lay down his life for his friends. And God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us here in his love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Have you reflected upon God's love for you today? That's what touches me. One of the worst things about being a pastor, and I'm sure Pastor Doug would, would echo this, is that sometimes we're caught up in the logistics of of sharing the Lord's Supper that we don't simply get to enjoy it. Occasionally, while we're serving up here, I'll forget where I am. I'm, I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise, and I forget that I'm supposed to stand and say something, or I'll forget what I'm supposed to say. I'm putting the best possible spin on me forgetting. It might be something else occasionally, but we'll, we'll just say that it's worship, and I'm caught up in worship and forget where I am. It's happened. Wouldn't that be great if we all got lost in wonder, love, and praise when we see Jesus on the cross for us? That's what this is all about. Don't forget it. It's the good news. And did you notice the passion in all of this? Because you can read the scripture and take the Lord's Supper without passion. But they heard him fervently their hearts were burning while he talked with them on the way. They urged him strongly, stay with us. And then they saw him clearly. And that's what we need to experience. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was what? Blind, but now I see. And that's the experience of these two disciples. I was blind to the person of Christ who was with me and I didn't even know it. But every day this year I want to see Christ in the scriptures and at his table. One of the great hymns that we used to sing quite often is the hymn of resolution. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I will hasten, hasten to him, hasten, so glad and free. Jesus, the greatest 
the highest, I will come to thee and I will see thee every day. That's my determination. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessings of a new year. And may we make this resolve to see you daily by the Spirit's work that we would take the Word of God to see the Son of God made clear to us by the Spirit of God so that our lives would be radically changed as children of God. In your name we pray. Amen.